Great. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Kenton Bryce. I am a covenant member here at Providence Road, and those lights are really bright. Um, I don't get to preach much often, but uh, when I do, I really appreciate it because it gives me the time to really dive into text in a different way. Uh, and so uh, thank you, Madison, for reading all of that. That was a lot. Um, and I'm not going to preach verse by verse today because that's just way too much. Um, when Jeremy asked me to preach uh, back a couple of months ago, and I was like, yeah, July uh, 29th works great or 30th works great. And then he said, okay, Ecclesiastes 10. And I was just like, okay, Ecclesiastes 10, here we go. Uh, so I actually like Ecclesiastes. It's a great book. Uh, this one feels like this chapter in these area just feels like it's all over the place. Uh, there are probably five or six sermons that could come out of this text. I'm going to do my best to boil it into one and be out of here before 2 o'clock this afternoon. So is that good? Just kidding. The professor in me really wants to go and dive deep on every single verse because it's so rich. It's so rich. Uh, but what I think the common theme that we can pull out that I want to talk about today um, is obviously wisdom versus folly, right? Wisdom versus foolishness. But there's an actual backdrop that the author of Ecclesiastes is using to highlight wise living versus foolish living. And that's the backdrop of authority. And so last week, if, uh, if you were here last week, Blake did a wonderful job of unpacking chapter 9 and really talking about uh, death and death as a backdrop for understanding how we then shall live, right? And I think there's a transition in 9, 11, and 12 where we see that uh, now going into wisdom, right? Or, I mean, authority. And so we see throughout these verses that there's things talk about rulers, uh, rulers that do certain things, rulers that act certain ways, uh, ways that we respond to rulers. And when I hear that, I think, oh, okay, well, here's this backdrop, this canvas that uh, the author of Ecclesiastes is projecting wisdom versus folly on. So what I'm not going to talk about today is just straight up authority. This is not a sermon about authority. We're going to talk a little bit about authority, but more is how it highlights uh, wise living versus foolish living. And the theme that I think comes out that uh, the reason why we need to live wise lives and not foolish lives is because living under authority, under the sun, similar to death, is inevitable and unpredictable. Living under authority here on earth is inevitable. It is completely inevitable. Even if you think you can go off the grid and live somewhere in like a national park in the United States, you're still living under federal authority. Uh, you live in Norman, Oklahoma. I teach legal research and law at the College of Law. And one of the things I talk to my first year students about in my very first class is the levels of authority in Norman, Oklahoma you have to live under. There's 11, okay? Did you guys realize that? There are 11 levels of authority that we live under, whether it be county, city, state, federal governance. And then depending on what you do, you may have other authorities you have to submit to. And so it's inevitable that we live under authority, just like death is inevitable. But authority is also unpredictable. And that's where I think wise living can actually help us, right? And so to highlight this, Ecclesiastes 10.4 uh, kind of shows how uh, the author of Ecclesiastes is thinking about this. And it says, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, stop. We'll get to the next part later. 
Stop. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, this is just showing the unpredictability of authorities. We don't know why the ruler is angry. We actually don't know if we cause the anger or not. It's just unpredictable, right? So how then shall we live when the anger of the ruler rises against us? We don't know if we caused it. We don't know if someone else caused it. Sometimes we never know, right? Have you ever had a boss come into your office and say, I'm super angry right now, blah, 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 and you're like, whoa, what's going on here? I didn't cause this anger, but now he's angry or she's angry, and I'm the target of that anger, right? It's, it's unpredictable. The anger of a ruler is completely unpredictable, right? Sometimes it is predictable, but what I think he's highlighting is the unpredictability of it. If we keep on going, Ecclesiastes uh, 10, 5 through 7 says this, there is an evil that I've seen under the sun as it was an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Now, this passage, I think we can do an entire sermon on, uh, but we're not going to today. I just want to highlight that there is something going on where there is a ruler, and that ruler has done something that the author perceives as an error. Something wrong with the way they're ruling. And the, what, what did they do that was wrong? They put uh, fools in high places. They promote fools, right? And we can see this. We know this, right? People get promoted to positions of power not because of their wisdom, right? Because of something else. And he's saying that's an, that's an error from the ruler. Now, does anyone in here have control over that? No, right? No, it's unpredictable who gets promoted into positions of authority. We just don't know why. Right? We just don't know why. It's completely unpredictable. Right? And so um, that's kind of our backdrop. We have this unpredictable ruling authority over us. And then the question is, then how shall we live? Then how shall we live? Uh, but before I get to that, and we're going to talk about wisdom versus folly, I do want to acknowledge something that needs to be in the back of our minds as we read through these verses and as I preach. The first is this, Romans 13, chapter, or chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. It says, let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment, right? So here's the backdrop of all this. If you are in Christ, you know that there is an ultimate authority that puts all other authorities in place. Authority is not random. It is not uh, completely random. It may be unpredictable, but it's not random. There's actually an order to it. And we also know from Scripture that God does all things for the good of those who love him. Right? So how do you perceive authority is uh, going to show either you're wise or you're foolish. And the reason why I say that is in Proverbs 9.10, it says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So these are the two verses you need to keep in the back of your mind as we keep talking about wisdom versus foolishness. Wisdom comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from reading a ton of really good books. Right? It doesn't come from having life experience. It comes from the fear of the Lord. It does come from those things, but the foundation is the fear of the Lord. When you have more perspective on why authority exists, it actually frees you up to live a more flourishing life, right? And so that's what I think what these two verses are saying. So that's kind of like, 
this idea we've got to keep in our mind when we talk about wisdom versus foolishness as it's highlighted against the backdrop of authority, right? Authority under the sun seems random, right? But if you know that there is someone above the sun that's actually controlling everything and is sovereign and is powerful, the Lord, it actually calms you down and actually provides wisdom, okay? So keep that in your mind. But there are four stark examples uh, I think that the author of Ecclesiastes, uh, using all this understanding, is trying to show us, right? Uh, and here's number one, right? The first example or the first outcome or the, the first, really, um, illumination he wants us to get from this text. First is this. Fools are ignorant and lost and prideful in their ignorance. You can use that as a diagnostic or you can also use it as a prescription, right? Uh, the wise understand reality and live life intentionally. The wise actually understand what's going on, right? They can perceive what's going on. When the political worlds change, like what just happened in Africa in the country of Niger, there was a coup a couple of days ago. Do the people that live in Niger realize that there was a coup? Yes. Did they see it coming? Maybe. What then they, should they do? Right? What happens when there's a coup, when a different political power all of a sudden exists overnight? Right? The wise actually understand that God is in charge of all things. Right? Where the fool doesn't get that, and they, de- they, they go into their anxiety and fear, and that creates destructive practices in their own demise. And we see this from Scripture. Right? Uh, the wise understand that death is inevitable, and unpredictable. The wise understand that authority is inevitable and unpredictable, but the wise also understand that God is in charge of all authorities under the sun. So we see this uh, kind of highlighted, the fool's ignorance. We'll start in Ecclesiastes 10.3, and we're going to jump around Ecclesiastes and some other verses because none of this flows really well, uh, but Ecclesiastes 10.3 says this, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. This is a really fascinating verse in a couple of ways. First, uh, we're going to pull out immediately, he lacks sense, right? The fool lacks sense. He doesn't know what's going on. The fool does not understand the true reality of what's going on. Um, But the fascinating thing is the first part of this, even when the fool walks on the road. Well, who walks on a road? Someone going somewhere. Someone working. Somebody doing normal things. So this fool is actually doing the normal course of life right? Just walking through life. Do they know where they're going? No. We see that in Ecclesiastes 10.15. It says, the toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way of the city. All this work he is doing just wears him out because he doesn't know what's actually going on or where he's going in life, right? He does not live with intention. He's wayward, aimless. Sometimes we feel like that, right? We definitely know people that feel like that. But the third part of this verse, which I think is fascinating, is the last little phrase. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. So this is fascinating. I didn't actually get this until I read one of the commentaries on this. Uh, There's two ways to read this. The first way is how we probably read it naturally. He's telling everyone else on the road that he himself is a fool. Out of his mouth, he just reveals how foolish he is, right? I'm a fool, I'm a fool, I'm a fool, I'm a fool. I wouldn't imagine that scenario, but that's kind of what he's highlighting here. He says to everyone that he is a fool on the road. As he goes through life, every time he opens a mouth, 
his mouth, he just reveals his own foolishness. All right? The second way of reading, and I think that actually there's scripture to back that up. Now, again, if I had just this one verse, we could do a whole sermon just on this one verse because it's fascinating to go through other scripture that talk about uh, our mouth and our tongue and how that reveals our hearts. Right? But the second way of reading this is fascinating. Uh, and in the Hebrew, it's the same thing. That pronoun he, when it says he is a fool, it's, uh, it's ambiguous. And I think the writer intended it to be ambiguous because there's another way of reading this. It says, he says to everyone that he meets that he is a fool. He is a fool. He is a fool. It's the second way of reading it. Fascinating. The fool thinks that everyone else is a fool and he's the only one that has the wisdom, right? He walks along the road in the way of life. He thinks he knows what he's doing and how to go. Everyone knows he's a fool, but he thinks everyone else is a fool. He's telling everyone, you're a fool, you're a fool, you're a fool, you're a fool, you're a fool. Right? He's the only one that thinks he has all the answers. And we have other scriptures that back this up. Right? Uh, one I want to point out is Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. So it's fascinating to think about this, right? The fool goes through life doing normal things, doesn't really have intention, kind of aimless, and calls everybody else a fool because they think they got it all figured out. And he is foolish in, a, in his own eyes, or he's wise in his own eyes, right? He's right in his own eyes. He doesn't, he's totally ignorant. He's got all these blinders on to his own foolishness. But I love how Proverbs plays this out. But a wise man does what? He listens to advice. He seeks counsel. He's asking for correction. He's asking people, is what I'm doing correct or not correct? He's not just saying what I do is correct. He's asking. He wants counsel. He wants to be rebuked. He wants to be corrected. He also wants to be affirmed. He wants to know if the pathway he is on is actually the right pathway. That is listening to advice. What should I do here? Instead of saying, I know what to do, and everyone else that gets in my way is a fool. Right? This goes back to that idea that fools are ignorant and lost and wayward, but the wise actually understand what's going on in the world, and they live intentionally, and they're asking people to help them live intentionally. All right, so the second point that we see, or the second uh, illustration, is that wise are protected, they're powerful, but they're also humble, right? Fools are vulnerable and weak, and we've already seen they're prideful in their foolishness. And we'll see that again throughout Ecclesiastes. But the wise are protected, powerful, and humble altogether. So I want to look at Ecclesiastes 9, 13 through 15. Uh, the author says this, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There is a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. So what we have, we have a small city, not very many people in it, and a great king is sieging against the city. It's kind of a David and Goliath type of uh, scenario, right? Um, and so what happens? What happens? Well, we actually don't know how things happen, and we don't know who does what, we just know there was a poor, wise man, and he actually delivered the city. Through his wisdom, creates protection for that city, and there's also immense power. 
Can you imagine a great king coming against a small city and besieging it, and all of a sudden the king goes away and is defeated? There's some power going on there, right? It's just a poor wise man. We'd probably look down on that person. We probably wouldn't listen to him. Actually, Ecclesiastes in a couple of verses says that, right? We don't listen to these people generally, right? But he does everything in humility. No one remembers this guy. He's not doing it for glory. He's not doing it for selfish ambition. He's doing it to protect and preserve. He has power in that, and he has humility in that. And that brings me to Ecclesiastes 10.2, which is fascinating to think about how this works. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. In Scripture, when we see right versus left, what we're actually saying is the seat of honor or the seat of correct living or the way of correct living and the seat of dishonor on the left and the uh, incorrect living, right? Um, And so a wise man's heart inclines him to the left. Now go back, remember, where do we get wisdom from? Fear of the Lord, right? If the spirit of the Lord is in you, he is going to incline you to the right, right? He is going to incline you to power, just like David versus Goliath. Right? He sits in a position of authority, power, and protection, but also humility. Because those who sit on the right hand of the ultimate authority, the king, right? they're in a position of power. They can do lots. They get counsel. They can save kingdoms by their counsel. They're also protected. Why are they protected? Because they got the covering of the greatest king. Also, they're servants. That's what you do sitting at the right hand. The ultimate servant is Jesus Christ. And guess where he sits right now? Anybody know? The right hand of the Father. He is powerful. He provides protection. He is protected. But he's humble in doing it. He's not out for his name. Fascinating. That's what the wise are. Or the the ignorant, the, the fools, are weak. They're powerless. They think they're powerful, but they have no power because they have no covering, right? We're going to see this again through Ecclesiastes. All right, I'm going quick. All right, number three, the wise are prudent, gracious, and calm with their words, while fools are obnoxious, reckless, and self-destructive. It's just another highlight here, all right? Ecclesiastes 10.4, we're going to go back to this. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, what do you do? Do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. We don't know why the ruler's angry. We have no clue if the anger is because of what I did or someone else did or just because of the nature of things or because they read the newspaper or uh, were strolling social media and they got really angry, right? We don't know why. But what's my response if I'm wise? Stay where I'm at and be a calming presence. And you know what the result is? I'm going to lay great offenses to rest. We talk about power again. The wise are powerful. Great offenses. We don't even know what the offense is. We just know they're really great, and we can lay them to rest if we're wise and calm. We have words that can soothe. We can have words that are gracious. How do we lay great offenses to rest? Through love and grace, right? That's what the wise do. The fools are reactive, right? Uh, So if we look at Ecclesiastes 10, 12 through 14, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, right? They're gracious. They're prudent. 
but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? You guys see kind of these two images, a fool and a wise person. A wise person is gracious and calm with their words, and a fool is just obnoxious. He will not stop talking, which is usually me, by the way. And so I'm still trying to grow in wisdom in this area. Um, but a fool does not control his tongue. He has no ability to control his tongue. All right? He's obnoxious. He just keeps talking and talking and talking, thinking he is wise in his own eyes. The beginning of his words is foolishness, and the end is evil madness. He just talks in circles, right? Just continues to talk, hoping he figures out what he's saying. And what is the result of that? He consumes himself. It's self-destructive. It's self-destructive. Either he consumes himself in his own madness, or he consumes himself uh, <laughs> to where he cannot see actual truth because he has convinced himself. He's consumed himself with his own words. He's convinced himself of the reality that he thinks is real, and we see elsewhere that he's the only one that thinks that's a reality. All right? That's the fool. It's self-destructive. It's obnoxious. All right? If we go to Ecclesiastes 9.17, we also see this again in the context of a ruler. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. All right? Uh, I, you know, I'm not going to talk about current day politics, but um, if you go throughout history, you'll see like divisions in democracies or other governments, and usually there's somebody pounding their fist on the desk trying to yell to get everyone's attention, and no one's listening to that person. Where the actual work, the one that leads to flourishing, is done by quiet people who have reason and understanding. Right? You look throughout history. Be a student of history, you're going to find this pattern over and over and over again. And that's what uh, this is talking about right here. The wise are calm. Why? Because they fear the Lord. They know, they know that inevitably there is a ruler among everyone, and they're putting these other people in place for the good of those who love God. Right? They have that understanding. Okay, a last little point, and then we'll get into some other stuff. Uh, the wise, number four, the wise are prepared for the unpredictability of life. Fools are unprepared, and it leads to danger. Right? It leads to danger. Now, we know from reading through Ecclesiastes that things happen to the foolish and the wise. Right? We know that things happen. Death comes for us all. I don't care how wise you are or how foolish you are, death is coming for you. You can't wise yourself or reason yourself out of death. It's not possible. You can't reason yourself out of living under authority. Right? It's not possible. But there's a way we can live to actually flourish. And there's a way we can live that actually leads to our own destruction uh, and destructive forces. So I want you to look at Ecclesiastes 10, 8 through 11. And these are probably my favorite chunk of this entire uh, series. Uh, and I wish we had like another two hours just to talk about this, because this is fascinating. Um, but really go through it. I really want you to just see that preparation is key, and the wise are prepared. It says, he who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stone is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge... He must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. 
If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The reason I absolutely love these verses, it shows just the randomness of how things work. Verse 8, most commentators say that person who is digging a pit or is trying to break through a wall is doing it for nefarious means. You're trying to break through a wall to steal something. You're trying to dig a pit to capture somebody. And you know what? The evil person is going to have evil done to them. That's basically what they're saying. You know, you be evil, evil's going to happen to you, right? Uh, the idea that these violent uh, desires have violent ends, right? Um, but then verse 9, he says, hey, he who quarries stone. Well, that's a normal job. So is uh, chopping down trees. Nothing nefarious about that. Going about your day, doing your work, and you're still going to get hurt. I think it's just fascinating, right? Um, but really what I want you to see is verse 10 and 11. If the iron is blunt, you're going to use more strength. It's going to hurt more. You're going to wear yourself out faster. But the wise know that they need to sharpen the iron. So there's actually this quote that popped up on my LinkedIn feed uh, last week, which I thought was fascinating as I was reading through this. I don't know if Microsoft's listening to me and reading what I'm reading and showing me things. They probably are. Um, but it said this. It said, Abraham Lincoln once said that uh, you give me six hours to chop down a tree, I'll spend four sharpening the axe. And that's the idea, right? Sharpen the axe first. Spend more time preparing, and then you're ready for what's coming. I do woodworking on the side for fun as a hobby, and I can tell you a blunt blade is extremely dangerous. An extremely sharp blade is extremely safe. It's just fascinating to think about. Right? I spend more time sharpening things than I do cutting. This is absolutely true. Why? Because I have the end in mind, and I want to be in a position of safety. Right? The fool just gets to chopping. Doesn't even think about this stuff. And I like verse 11. If the serpent bef bites before it is charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. The wise are ready. They're prepared for when the time comes to act. Serpent shows up, you're ready to charm it. If you're not ready, guess what's going to happen? That serpent's going to bite you, and there's no more advantage to you. All right? You've lost your ability to actually prove your worth or your value. Right? You're, you're, to get the job done. So it's not just about preparation. It's also being ready. Being ready. And as I was uh, you know, reading through these, you go through these, and you're like, man, I, I'm feeling some other things in Scripture come out of this, right? Preparation. We talk about preparation a lot, and preparation in multiple ways. Uh, Ecclesiastes 10, 16 through 18 talks about preparation in a different way. It says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is a son of nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Again, we're seeing, we're seeing this comparison of the fool versus the, uh, the wise, right? The fool is a king as a child. They're immature. They're unprepared. They're not ready to be a king. They weren't grown up to be a king. They're just a child. And what happens? The princes feast in the morning, and if you cut out 17, the roof, the, the roof is going to sink in because everyone's slothful. Everybody's exhausted. They spent all their energy in the morning just partying, right? And everything goes to ruin. But what do the wise do, right? The son of the nobility, the person that is actually put into power because they were the person supposed to be in power. They were grown up to be a king, Right? They're the son of nobility. They've been in that culture. They understand the weight of being a leader. 
And what happens? The princes feast at the proper time, right? There's a proper time for feasting. Yeah, you can feast. Go party. Awesome. Just do it at the proper time and not for drunkenness. You do it for strength. And then guess what? You're ready. You're ready for when the roof is about to cave in. You're keeping things maintained. And then you're also ready when somebody starts sieging your city and you're not just sitting around exhausted. You are ready, all right? So I was reading through these. It reminded me of Matthew 7, 24 through 27. So where Jesus actually plays upon these same themes and says, hey, listen, there is a way to be wise and a way to be foolish. There is a way to live in a way that provides security and there's a way that provides danger, right? If you're going to be prepared, uh, you will be better prepared for what's coming. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, this is Jesus speaking right here, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. All right? You have been living a life of wisdom, and you are ready for what's coming. You built your house on God's word. You built your house on the wisdom of Jesus because you fear the Lord. And when the, it's, it just assumes the wind and waves are coming, right? The flood's coming. Are you ready? That's what Jesus is highlighting here. The fool, on the other hand, doesn't do it. He's like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. He didn't listen to the Lord. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Right? Why did the house fall? Because he wasn't ready. He wasn't prepared. He wasn't prepared for what life has for him. He's not building his house on the word of the Lord. He's not building his house. He, he's not preparing his life according to the being afraid of God or having fear of God in him. He's just going out on his own. He thinks he's wise, and it's just sand, and it's ready to just get demolished. The house is ready to get demolished whenever the flood comes, right? The same idea was in Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. These are not on your screen. I'm just going to summarize them. This is the story of the ten virgins, all right? Jesus tells this story. He's like, hey, there are ten virgins. Five were wise. Five were foolish. The five wise virgins trim their lamps with oil and are ready with oil for when the bridegroom comes for the feast. The others, the other five, don't have any oil. They're not getting prepared. And then the bridegroom shows up in the middle of the night, and guess who's ready? The five who have the oil. And it's fascinating, that story, because the, uh, the ones without oil come to the wise and say, please, tell, give us some of your oil. He's here. And they're like, no, 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 we are prepared, ready to go. Go buy oil and see if you can come back in time. And then by the time the foolish ones come back, guess what? The door is closed, the party's happening, the feast is going on, and they can't get in. And then what does Jesus say at the end of it? Truly I say to you, I do not know you. So we have an opportunity. So there's an opportunity to be prepared for what comes in life for us right now, and then there's a way to be prepared for what's coming. Because we know that Jesus is coming back. We know that the bridegroom is coming back. So how are we living, right? Are we living to be ready for that? Or are we kind of ignorant to what's going on around us and the true reality of that, right? Well, that was kind of a downer. Okay, so, uh, so I want to say this, though. There is hope. There's immense hope. And if, if anything, through all these four different ideas, I hope you want to run towards wisdom and away from foolishness because foolishness leads to destruction in this life and the next, and I hope you want to be wise. I hope you want to flourish. 
That's my hope. I hope you want to live a life of prudence and you're calm and you're just enjoying what the Lord has given you or just life in general. You're enjoying your kids, right? You're enjoying your jobs. You're enjoying your families. You're enjoying your marriage. You're enjoying your garden, right? No matter what happens with the political authority ahead of you. Because we don't know who's going to be president in two years. We don't know who's president in six years, 10 years, 14 years. We don't know. And if that's what's controlling us, that fear and anxiety, we're not going to be able to enjoy the things of life, right? So where do we get wisdom, right? You've heard it already, Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want wisdom, start there, right? Start there. The fear of the Lord is this interesting concept in the Old Testament, and really, there's three different ways to think about the fear of the Lord. Um, there's probably more than this, but I want to boil it down to three. The first is the essential theology of faith, of salvation. The fear of the Lord, those who fear the Lord are those who belong to the Lord. Right? If you don't know Jesus, it's impossible for you to have fear of the Lord, ultimately. Right? If you do think you have the fear of the Lord, but you're like, I don't need that Jesus guy at all, you're ignorant and mistaken to what Scripture actually teaches, right? So that's one. The second is moral obedience. Yeah, we're going to talk about moral. I'm just kidding. We're not going to talk about it that much. Uh, but yeah, moral obedience, personal piety as a result of either positive fear or negative fear. Positive fear being the idea of reverence. God is amazing. He created all things. Seriously. Like, the stage I'm standing on, God created the materials to make this stage. Isn't that amazing? That there is something outside of our universe and world that created all the universe in the world for us to flourish. That's amazing. That should, my goodness, like the car you drive is only possible because God exists. Who has a really cool car in here? Praise the Lord, Right? Who has a really crappy car? Praise the Lord, right? The house you live in only exists because God made the materials for it to exist. That should leave you in awe. Who can create matter? Anyone? No. Scientists disagree on this, but no, you can't create matter, right? Who can create matter? God. Where did it come from? God. Amazing. Like, just, that just amazes me. You just sit in that for a minute, right? I know Josh wanted everybody to start like roaring like lions or some odd stuff today. And I'm like, guy, you're sitting in a chair. Who made that chair? Well, some guy in Texas probably. But where'd they get the materials for that? Or the insight to do it? Or how to design it? All from God. That's what scripture teaches. Amazing. Absolutely awestruck. Who sent his own son so that you could have a relationship with him? God. Who does that? I wouldn't do it. I would just be honest. I wouldn't give up Ian for a sinful people. No way. But God does it. Why? Because he loves and he's all loving. That should create fear in us. If there's somebody that does that, we should probably worship that guy. Right? Amazing. But there's also a second part, negative fear. We know that God is a jealous God and he hates sin and he will destroy sin out of his justice. God is all merciful, loving, creating, but he's also just. And those have to be together. We can't ignore that. They have to be together. The fear of the Lord is also the fear of his wrath. 
he who can create can also destroy. And he will. Scripture says it. Live in that reality. Understand that reality. That's called the fear of the Lord. Does that keep me up at night? Sometimes. Most likely because I come more in awe and saying how great it is that you saved my soul so I'm not subject to that destruction. Amazing that you sent your son down to save me so I'm not subject to your wrath anymore. That's amazing. You know what? People that aren't under the sun or under Jesus should be terrified. Should be terrified. And then lastly, the fear of the Lord is also the identification of worship. It's identification of worshipers of God. The fear of the Lord should lead you to worship. And we're going to see that kind of teased out here. Because those of us that are in Christ who have the fear of the Lord, we have the foundation of wisdom. We have the foundation of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How do we grow in that? I want to grow in wisdom. I want to grow in wisdom, and I want to be wise for my children. I also want to be wise for this church. I want to be wise for relationships, for my job. I also want to be wise so I am not just sitting there uh, just kind of like a reed to be shaken every time something happens in the world. I want to stand strong and have confidence that everything is going to be okay. Everything's going to work out for the good of those who love Jesus, right? So Colossians 3, 4, 1 4 through 4 says this. If then you have been raised with Christ, what do we do? We seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and you, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What great confidence is this? We've got to set our minds on things above. That's what the wise do. If I'm just navel-gazing or I'm just like in my job and only concerned about my job all the time and how it's affecting me, I'm not setting my things on, my, on things above. I have the power to do that because I am in Christ. And I understand that. There's people that I work with that, are not, that don't know Jesus, a lot of them. And you know what? They're tied up with anxiety and fear. And usually I'm a calming presence for them. Usually, not all the time. I feel myself getting wrapped into this, but I come back to Colossians. Like, I need to set my, things, my mind on things above. That's how I grow in wisdom. Also in Ephesians 5, 15 through 21, for those of us in Christ, we know also here how to grow in wisdom. Because Paul says this, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. We've heard this in Ecclesiastes already. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So stop right there. How do we gain wisdom? We understand what the will of the Lord is. How do you understand what the will of the Lord is? You read his word. You want to become wise? Get in scripture, right? Read, right? And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit, right? That kind of freaks us out sometimes, right, Josh? Being filled with the spirit? Yeah, be filled with the spirit, Addressing one another, one another, in here, one another. I'm being real right now. Like, uh, I'm going to start calling people out. I'm just kidding. Uh, so we should be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord. You guys hear what's going on here? Worship. Fear the Lord and worship, right? 
giving thanks always, being gracious, and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Again, reverence. Wow. Did you guys just see all that? How do you grow in wisdom? You get in the word, you worship, and you get in community. You want to grow in wisdom? That's what Paul's saying right here. Right? Reminds me of Proverbs 27, 17. We like this one. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Right? How do we get what? How do we sharpen the iron? If we use that same analogy from Ecclesiastes of making sure the iron's not blunt when we get to work, if we are the iron, how do we sharpen ourselves? We got to get around other believers. The wise seek advice. The foolish go their own way and think it's the right way. The wise, those in Christ, get around the community of believers and we rub off on each other. And you know what? I've sharpened iron in, in woodworking. Sometimes it's not a pretty process. Sometimes there's sparks. Sometimes there's birds that you got to shave off. It, sometimes it hurts. All right? And that's good. Praise the Lord. You're becoming wise. All right? That's how we grow in wisdom. For those of you that are not in Christ, if you're in here listening to me and you're like, whoa, okay, hold on. I thought wisdom came from like Aristotle, Socrates, uh, reading uh, the great philosophers of old. Um, this is what I want to say to you, right? Scripture, God's word tells us that the foundation of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Yes, you can grow in wisdom by reading people and then getting life experience. But how do you even start? You have to start in Jesus, right? Come to him. Like, if you want to be wise, come to Jesus. He will give you wisdom. He will give you his spirit so that you can grow in wisdom. Be part of this body. You'll become wise. It's just what scripture says, right? Come know the author of wisdom. Who created wisdom? God. How do you grow in wisdom? God. How do you know the foundations of wisdom? Fearing him. You want greater perspective on how life actually works and enter into a greater reality that's bigger than what's on Fox News or CNN or on your news feed or TikTok? You want a greater reality than that? Come to the Lord. Come to the Lord. Fear Him. Because He'll provide way more perspective for what is actually going on. And I'll say this, for those of you not in Christ listening, uh, and you think this is kind of like, oh, man, I don't know. Um, I, I, I want to end with this. God loves you. He wants you to be wise. He wants all of us to be wise. Why? Because it leads to flourishing. God desires that his creation flourishes. God loves you. Why? Because God is love. If you think it's all about the fear of wrath, you're missing a whole massive part of who God is and his character, right? First uh, John 4, 9 through 15, I'll end here, says this. In, the love, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. So God is love, and this is how it is manifested for us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Big word, right? Basically said payment, taking care of it. If you live in sin, come to Jesus. He'll take care of it. He's promised it, and he did it by death and resurrection. No one has ever seen God. I'm sorry, skip that. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Amen. Can I get an amen? Oh, man. We're going to work on it. All right. Every week we say we're going to work on it. We, we got to do some work. But I went in with this. For all of you, whoever, whoever, it doesn't say Greek, it doesn't say Hebrew, it doesn't say Israelite, it doesn't say American, it doesn't say from the South or the North, it doesn't say any of that. It says whoever. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, your ethnicity, race, upbringing, anything. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. How do you get the fear of the Lord? Believe in Jesus. How do you get wisdom? Believe in Jesus. If you don't believe in Jesus, I want you to consider that. This is what the God of the universe is telling you. So I'm pleading with you. Okay, consider that. I'm going to pray, and we're going to enter into a time of communion. And uh, I want you to consider these things. All right. Uh, Father God, Lord, we love you. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for authors of scripture that highlight what you're trying to say through them to us. We thank you that you are the fount of knowledge and wisdom. Lord, I pray that we would fear you. Lord, I pray that we would come to you often, all the time, to know you in your grace, know you in your power, so that we may grow in wisdom to have better perspective of the real life that you have laid out before us. Lord, I pray for flourishing among Providence Road. I pray for those in this congregation that don't know you, that they would come to know you today. Or that conversations be had, Lord, even in this body, for those of us in Christ, that we would sharpen one another, that we would be wise, that we grow in that. Lord, as we come to your table, we pray that you bless these elements, Lord, as a picture of what you have done for us. Thank you, God, for Jesus, for sending your Son, Lord, that we may have life eternal and such a beautiful life here in our days here on earth. We love you, in Jesus' name.